The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Please remain standing to hear God's word from Hebrews chapter 1. And then we'll pray together. God's word. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Father, we have just a few moments today, but we ask that your spirit who breathed out these words, displaying the radiant glory of your son and his majesty in humility as the Messiah who came to redeem us, that your spirit will write into our hearts what you want us to hear, even from these few moments of reflection on this rich part of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Last spring we had a series of devotions on Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, thinking about Jesus as our great prophet, priest, and king, the way that prologue introduced that, those great themes throughout this whole majestic sermon slash letter, mostly sermon slash letter. If you're a new student just joining us, those, you can listen to those on the website, but uh, when I, Dr. Kim approached me about doing another series, I, I asked him if I could have seven I had four last spring, now I get seven, because there are seven Old Testament texts in the rest of that chapter, which you just heard, and I want to take some time to meditate with you on each of these seven texts, texts that the preacher to the Hebrews cites 
to demonstrate the conclusion that you heard in verse 4, that Jesus has become as much superior to the angels as he has inherited a name that is far better than theirs. So this series, I, I think, will do two things for us. I pray they will. Uh, one, most important, they will expand and deepen our appreciation for the greatness of the Redeemer whom God the Father sent to rescue us from the enslavement of the enemy, the devil, who, whom Hebrews calls in chapter 2 the one who has the power of death. Um, we'll be more amazed, I pray, as we see the greatness of the Son, his great glory as the eternal divine Son of the Father and his great glory as the successful messianic Son of the Father. That's, that's the most important thing. But the other thing I think we'll see along the way is that the preacher to the Hebrews is going to teach us more about how to read the Bible, how to read the Old Testament, uh, how to read the Old Testament, not just the isolated words that he cites, but the neighborhood around the words that he cites. And that's why I thought it would be appropriate for us to sing the whole of Psalm 2. He quotes from Psalm 2-7. We will see that he's actually bringing into view also 2-8. Uh, I'll show you that in a minute. Uh, the preacher to the Hebrews shows us how to read the Old Testament in context, both its close context and its ultimate context focusing in Christ. Back in 52, British New Testament scholar Charles Dodd had a, published a little book that, as far as I can tell, went into only one printing uh, called According to the Scriptures, the Substructure of New Testament Theology. Uh, that's a great loss. If you can get a hold of one of those, uh, you will be glad you did. Um, don't steal the library copy. All right, good. One of the points that Dodd made in there was that when a New Testament pass, uh, author quotes an Old Testament text, he's not just doing what sometimes people have accused New Testament authors of doing, that is, taking a few words, snatching them out of context, and twisting them to make them do what he theologically wants them to do. Dodd says, no, when the New Testament authors refer to Old Testament passages, they actually have sort of in their peripheral vision uh, the whole neighborhood in which that passage was found. More recently, Dr. Greg Beale, who's done a lot of work on this, has also used that theme of peripheral vision. And they want us as people who are learning the word to think about the bigger neighborhood as well. And Hebrews citation of the first of the seven here from Psalm 2-7 here in verse 5 is a great example to that, of that. We, we've heard the psalm as we sang it, right? That it opens with the collusion, the conspiracy of the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Uh, the writer uh, of uh, Acts, Luke, records a, a prayer uh, of the church in Acts 4 that shows that they saw that conspiracy of the Israelites and the pagan Romans in the death of Jesus, all previewed in Psalm 2. Uh, but that's not where this text comes from. It comes from the heart of the psalm, verses 7 and 8, where the Messiah, after God says, I put Messiah on my holy hill, the Messiah says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possessions. And then, as we sang, that last verse of our setting this morning, 
The psalm ends with counsel to kings to wise up, to serve the Lord with trembling and with fear and with joy, to kiss the sun while there's still time to turn back from your defiant rebellion, lest you perish. Rather, you want to receive the favor that he bestows on those who take refuge in him. Three thoughts, very briefly, on Psalm 2-7 as quoted in Hebrews 1-5. First, notice that it's introduced with the rhetorical question, to which of the angels did God ever say? Actually, if you're looking at your Greek text, you'll know that the ESV supplied the term God. Uh, To which of the angels did he, obviously referring to God, ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Did you notice that question is virtually the same as the question that introduces the last of the quotes, verse 13? To which of the angels has he ever said? And then he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. Neat signal. Scholars call that inclusio. It envelops. Notice the series, the beginning and the end. To which of the angels? Did God ever say such words? And obviously the answer has to be to none of them, but only to the Son. But not just that. Notice the themes. Psalm 2, God on his throne and Messiah on his throne. Psalm 110, Messiah on his throne at the right hand of God in heaven. He's ruling. He's ruling. So there's that theme that ties this whole section together. And we'll hear, as you did, as we read through, we'll hear other references to the throne of the Messiah as well, which is a divine throne. But that leads to the um, more interesting question. That's an important question, but the more interesting question is, the psalm says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. When is that today? What is that today. Some of you have had ancient church, some of you have it in the future. You will know that one of the early heresies about the person of Christ was adoptionism, that Jesus was a very good and pious man who was promoted to be the son of God through his obedience, suffering, and death, and exalted at that point um, through his suffering and his resurrection. Uh, That's an old heresy. It comes around every so often in new forms, but it's always there. Um, And so to steer clear of that heresy, we might be inclined to jump to the answer that many Orthodox interpreters have given to the question, when is the today of Psalm 2-7? And that is, well, it's an eternal today. It's an endless today. It's a timeless today. This is a reference to the eternal generation of the Son, that he is eternally divine, one God, three persons, that he eternally maintains a son-to-father relationship with the first person of the Trinity, it's eternal. That's true. The Bible teaches that, unquestionably. The question is, is that what Psalm 2-7 is about as the preacher here deals with it? Is it an eternal today? I would suggest, in the light of what he's just said in the prologue, and in the light of the way other places in the New Testament comment on 2.7, it's a different today that we're thinking about. Remember in the prologue, the preacher had said that it was after making purification for sins that the son became 
as much superior to the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than theirs. What is that name? Well, he quotes the verse, right? That name is the name Son. It's the title. It's the dignity of the Son. He's become better than the angels. After Dr. Kim dealt me seven Tuesdays, I was tempted to ask for an eighth because I'd love to go into chapter two, verses seven and eight, to talk about uh, the sun becoming lower than the angels. But we can't go there. Uh, but I would suggest that that explains how the sun now becomes better because Hebrews is thinking about Christ as sun in two senses, related but distinguishable. Eternal divine sun, messianic sun. And the prologue has already introduced us to that. In two, the end of two, we read about the son as a messianic son. He is the heir of all things. We'll come back to that. Then about his work as the divine son. He is the one through whom God created the universe. That's eternal son, preexistent long before his coming to Bethlehem. And then at the very heart of that prologue, two references to his identity as the divine son, the radiance of God's glory, the imprint of God's substance, and then back out to his role as the divine son in preserving all things by the word of his power, and then on the outside of the envelope, again coming back to the messianic sonship, he's inherited a name that is better than theirs. So Hebrews has slammed the door on adoptionist Christology that reduces Jesus merely to a human being by emphasizing that he is the divine eternal son active in creation and providence and the radiance of the Father's glory. But Hebrews is also wanting to know, let us know that he is a messianic son who has, as we would read in Hebrews 2, come lower than the angels identifying with us and now is crowned with glory and honor. And that's the way the preacher to the Hebrews is using Psalm 2-7. It's the same way that Paul used Psalm 2-7 in Acts 13, in preaching another word of exhortation in a synagogue there. Paul said, we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written, in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he goes on to talk further about the resurrection. The resurrection is the today in which the eternal son, who's become our human brother to be the messianic son, is now declared to be, as Paul says in Romans 1, the son of God in power through the resurrection from the dead. He's son in both senses. And now we celebrate, especially here, the fact that he has accomplished his messianic mission, purification for sins, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. This is what Jesus is talking about in the Great Commission. All authority given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Supreme authority as the glorified, exalted Messiah. The today is actually the resurrection all the way through the 40 days to the ascension because Hebrews wants us to see Christ seated at the Father's right hand, Psalm 110. We'll get there. He is the heir of a better name, son. He is the ruler of all things. He is the heir, as Hebrews started in verse 2, he's the heir that was appointed 
to own everything in the universe. It belongs to him, not just by virtue of his divine creation, although that's true, but now by virtue of his messianic mission to redeem a people for himself. Everything. And that includes us. We belong to him. We think that often enough. I think I don't think that often enough. I don't spend enough moments of every day um, kind of reminding myself of that Latin phrase which Ligonier has embraced from previous generations, quorum Deu, before the face of God. I belong to him and he's present. It's great comfort, but it's also humbling. It's great comfort to know that, um, you may recognize these words, I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. That's an echo of Hebrews, by the way. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. That's comfort. It's comfort for those who know they belong to Christ and then also live out the implications of that as Heidelberg Catechism Answer 1 goes on to say, because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. I'm stealing my own thunder, but just to let you know, when we get to Psalm 110, verse 1 at the end of this semester, I'm going to go ahead and go on into verses 2 and 3, which lead to verse 4, priest forever. Verses 2 and 3 talk about God's people offering themselves willingly in the day of Christ's victory. That's the bottom line for us now. Comfort, absolutely. He's the heir of all things. He's ruling all things. But he's your ruler. Live before his face because you are not his own. You are not your own. You are his own. He is the heir of all things, including you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the eternal son became our human brother, not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters as uh, finite and fragile as we are, and worse yet, as guilty and polluted as we are, still he came to identify with us, to embrace his mission as messianic son, all the way down to the death of the cross to make purification for our sins. And Father, we praise you that you have now exalted him and he holds the title of messianic son by virtue of his perfect obedience, even as he has always been eternal son, radiance of your glory. Father, teach us to live as his property in this day, to be mindful that we belong to him and live before the face of the living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.